We're in an ongoing study together of the book of Ephesians, and uh, this study is called Alive to Love. And uh, I don't know that we've even mentioned that before. Maybe you saw it on the graphic or not. But we've talked already about the fact that in the first half of the book, Paul is writing to these new churches. He's writing to this church at Ephesus, and he's trying to, uh, to, to draw them to a sense of awe and gratitude and wonder at who God is and what God has done, so that then in the last half of the book, he will have the ability then to give us some action steps, some, uh, some things to do, some ways to move, some ways to live in response to the view of God and the way our view of God shapes the view of who we are. Now, if you were with us last week on Easter, we read and studied the second half of chapter one of Ephesians. And in the second half of chapter one, Paul prays the first of two prayers in the book. And that prayer specifically is for remembrance. He says, I'm praying that the spirit of God will give you wisdom and understanding so that you will know, that you'll remember the, the hope that God has called you to, the fact that you are his glorious inheritance. He wants us to remember the glorious inheritance of God in the saints. And he says, I want you to remember the power of God, which was demonstrated in the resurrection and in the ascension, in the elevation of Christ and in his ultimate authority over all things. That Christ is the authority of all things and that he has been given to us, the church, as the head of the body, right? There's all of this wonder and awe that is stirred as we remember the hope we've been called to, as we remember that we are his inheritance, and as we remember his incredible power that Ephesians 1 says is toward us who believe. His power is toward us. Now, the danger in all of that is as you start to think about the hope you've been called to, and as you start to think about the fact that you are God's glorious inheritance, and as you start to think about his resurrection power that is at work on your behalf, there can maybe be a tendency toward arrogance or a tendency towards pride. You start to go, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal, right? I'm God's inheritance. Like I have all this power. God loves me and cares about me. He's chosen me and saved me and he's called me and all of these things. And so interestingly in chapter two, Paul reminds us where we've come from. It can be helpful sometimes to be knocked down the ladder a little bit or to be reminded who we actually are, right? That we don't get an overinflated sense of ourselves. I remember when I was about 22 years old, I signed a record contract. Some of you know I was in a band for a little while, and uh, we, we signed our first record contract at, at about when I was about 22, and that was a big deal. Like We knew other local bands in Phoenix that were hoping to get record contracts, and we were the first one of our friends that had actually signed a recording deal, and so I started to kind of think like, you know what, I'm kind of a big deal, you know, like I'm a singer in a band that's got a record deal, we're going to put on an album, we're going to do some touring, like we're going to get our songs on the radio, like it started to be, uh, you know, I will admit that in that moment as a 22-year-old, I was kind of impressed with myself, and I remember uh, in that season, I remember there was a moment where I, I had to go to, uh, I had to go to the doctor for what was just like a routine checkup kind of physical thing, and I went there, you know, they, they, uh, they make you put on the paper gown deal, you know, so I'm just in my socks and my underwear with like this paper gown that's tied in the back, and they do all the checkup stuff, and then the doctor says, uh, okay, we want to we wanna check your resting heart rate, and I'm like, okay, that sounds like no big deal, so he checks my heart rate, and then he says, now we need to check your accelerated heart rate. And, the, and the, we don't have a treadmill in our office, so the thing we need you to do is, uh, is I just need you to jog in place for like three minutes. No big deal. Jog in place for three minutes right here in my, in my exam room, and then, uh, and then well, I'll, take your, I'll take your accelerated heart rate so that we can compare the two. And I'm like, 
Okay, now, now for the record, even at 22, I had this incredible physique that I currently have. And so, I, you know, I wasn't super worried about running for three minutes, but I'm an asthmatic, and I, I wasn't sure how that was going to go. But I start to jog in place, and then he says, hey, because we've got three minutes, i got a couple other things I'm going to do. I'm going to step out of the office for a second, and then I'm gonna, I'll come back when your three minutes is done. And so here I, here I am, I'm jogging in place, you know, and, uh, and he, he walks out. But here's the thing, you guys, he doesn't, he doesn't pull like a curtain, he doesn't close the exam room door, he just leaves it wide open, right? So now I'm, I'm jogging in place in a paper gown with just my socks, and uh, I'm running, and as I'm, I'm jogging in place, and I don't have like a watch or anything, so I'm just jogging, and I'm starting to get tired, and I'm starting to get sweaty, I'm starting to have a hard time breathing, and people are just like, Walking past, you know, like there's nurses, there's people coming in for other checkups, there's all kinds of things. People, I kind of felt like there were a few people who sort of stopped and kind of checked out my stride for a minute, you know, kind of watching. It's a little bit of an entertainment for them. And I will tell you in that moment, I was humiliated, right? It was like so humiliating to be jogging in place for what appeared to be no reason. I have no idea what my resting heart rate was or my accelerated heart rate, but I can tell you that my ego and my pride uh, dropped several rungs. There's, there are very few things more humiliating than jogging in a paper gown in front of strangers for three minutes. It was a kind of a weird moment for me. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to ensure that we don't get a too inflated a sense of ourselves at first. He's going to remind us where we've come from. He does that here in these first few verses. In verses 1 through 3, listen to what he says. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, though you should remember the hope to which you've been called and that you are God's glorious inheritance and that his power is at work toward you and, it, and on your behalf. He's like, never forget where you've come from. And he gives us three sort of categories of our past, the past of where we were. And I, I will tell you as we begin here that this is not a popular teaching, right? Th- this passage and the things we're gonna affirm, these three main categories here in the first three verses are not popular, they're not the kind of thing that people uh, tend to celebrate. In fact, I would say in our culture, there's actually only a very small percentage of the population that believes this. Most of mankind on the planet today have soundly rejected the first three verses of Ephesians chapter two. They've not only said, I don't believe that, I don't buy it, but they have rejected it outright. Why? Because these first three verses aren't flattering. We live in a world where we like to have our ego inflated. We like to be told good things about ourselves. We like to be affirmed. We like to be told that we're special. We like to be told that we never do anything wrong. We don't make any mistakes. And I want to let you know that that it is a minority position. For those of us who believe the Bible is true and who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, we are in the minority as far as believing this reality about mankind. Most of the world has rejected this. It's not popular. It's not the kind of thing that's going to puff you up. But it is important for us to look into the mirror and understand truthfully and correctly where it is we've come from so that we can understand the greatness of God's power on our behalf. The three categories that Paul reminds us of with regard to our past are these. The first one is he reminds us 
that we are dead. He says in verse one, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Uh, Trespasses and sins, those are just two categories, essentially the same thing. They're categories of sin. Trespasses is to overstep the boundaries or to walk off the path, right? That's what trespassing is. If you walk onto somebody else's property, God has called us to live a particular way and we have walked off the path. We have overstepped the bounds of what God has called us to. He says we are dead in our trespasses. That's an active overstepping of the bounds and also in our sins. Sin essentially is a falling short of the purpose for which God created us. So in both an active and a passive way, We have failed. We are both rebels and failures, right? Rebels and failures. We've trespassed. We've gone off the path. We've deviated from the boundaries. And we failed to live up to the purpose for which God created us. He says, not only have we trespassed and sinned, but those trespasses and those sins, that active and passive failure, right, and rebellion, have rendered us dead. Now this is different than what a lot of people think, right? There are many people who would believe that what we're doing when we gather as Christians or when we study God's word or when we worship him on a Sunday, that what we're ultimately angling towards is the modification of our life. That we're hoping to improve our life somehow. That you were, you were pretty great, but if you go to church, you're gonna be even greater. Or you were a pretty good guy, or you were a pretty nice lady. But if you start following Jesus, he's gonna make you that much nicer, or that much cooler, or that much happier, or that much more peaceful. For many of us, when we think about religion in general, we think of it in terms of modification. And the reason why we think of it in terms of modification is that every other major faith system on the planet is essentially geared towards modification. That you want to increase the level of your karma, or you want to work your way towards spiritual enlightenment, or you want to work your way up some sort of a, a stepladder of, of uh, hierarchy, right? Christianity is the only faith that says, no, this isn't about modification, it's about life. You're not someone who just needs to have their life improved. He says, remember you were dead. You were dead. Romans 6, 23, for instance, says, the wages of sin or the consequence of sin is death. This is an unpopular view, right? This is an unflattering view, but the reality is that what Jesus does for us is not modify us, but rescue us from death. Our trespasses and sins have separated us from God. Isaiah chapter 59 verse two says, but your iniquities or your sins, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He says, you were dead, Paul says in Ephesians. You were dead. This is who we were. This is what we looked like in the past. We were dead. I, I, the first car I ever drove was a Chevy Monza, right? Which you probably don't even know what that is. It was a it was a terrible car. But at one point, uh, it stopped working. It did that several times. But finally, it stopped working for the last time. And I took it into the shop, and I was like, hey, the Monza quit again. Like, what can I do about the Monza? Like, is there something we can do? And uh, the, the mechanic looked at me. He goes, man, we've patched this thing so many times. We've done everything we can to try and keep this thing rolling. I got to tell you, the Monza is dead, right? The Monza isn't going anywhere. Like, the Monza is done. You have to get a different car, right? So I, got a, I ended up getting a Ford Escort. That wasn't better. But the Monza was dead. Can you imagine how ridiculous it would be for me to put new tires on the dead Monza? Or how ridiculous it would be to pay $2,000 to have the dead Monza repainted? It is ridiculous for us to think about Christianity as a way to modify our lives because we don't need a new coat of paint. We don't need fancy new tires. That would only be slapping new tires and new paint onto a dead person. He says, remember who you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in your rebellion, right? 
and in your failure. We were not only dead, he says in this text, but we were also captive. Look at, look at Ephesians 1, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. He says, and you were dead in, the tr- in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's an ongoing perpetuation which you once walked. Verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not only does he tell us and remind us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he reminds us that we are captive. Captive in three distinct ways here in the text. Captive first to the world. He says, remember that you were following the course of this world. We live in a culture that defines so much for us, and for many of us, even those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's easy to fall into this old mindset. But before we knew Christ, we were captive to the thinking of this world. The things that we see in our culture, the oppression of the hungry and the poor, the discrimination against different races and different classes, the injustice we see that just sort of goes unchecked, the arrogance and the pride, the tyranny, the greed, the narcissism, the selfishness, the sloth, the the active rebellion against God, the amorality, the, the mindset that says, you know what, there is no good or bad, you just sort of do whatever you want to do, and as long as you don't hurt anybody else, it's no big deal. We fall into this captivity to the amorality of culture, or even worse, the immorality of culture that starts calling wicked things good. We start to become captives to our world. He says, you were not only dead in your trespasses and sins, but you followed after the course of the world. You were a captive to the thinking of the world. And we know that the world is evil, essentially, apart from God. It says in Galatians 1.3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. We see the wickedness, we see the selfishness, we see the oppression, we see the injustice, we see the tyranny. And apart from Christ, we are captive to those mindsets. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That sets up the second kind of captivity he talks about here. Not only captivity to the culture, but back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, You were following the course of the world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There, he's talking about the devil. Again, this isn't a popular opinion. There are many people who would want to dismiss Satan as, a, as an evil idea or as an evil entity or some sort of uh, you know, dangerous power. Listen, he is a person. He is our enemy. He is a liar. He is a murderer. He is a hater. And he is working actively to take captive the hearts of God's creation. To turn us away from God, not only before we knew Christ, not only were we dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were captive to the culture, which is evil. We were captured by the devil who wants to deceive us and lie to us, who wants to actively convince us that we're fine just the way we are. Just slap another coat of paint on the dead Monza, the devil would say. The devil is not an idea. The devil is a literal enemy, a tempter, a deceiver, a murderer, a hater, an idolater. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's the devil, that's Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, in the parable of the seeds and the sower, he says in 13, 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, that's the devil, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And that was what was sown along the path. We're not only captive to the culture, we're captive to our enemy, Satan, who would deceive us, who would steal the truth away. I said at the beginning that this teaching of our death and captivity is not popular, that it's been soundly rejected. Part of that rejection is the fact that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers, that they are not capable of recognizing this truth. They're stuck in their sin. They're stuck in death and captivity, apart from the enlightenment that comes through the power of God's Holy Spirit. He says, you were captive to the world. You were captive to the prince of the power of the air. Not only that, look at verse three of Ephesians 2. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He not only talks about captivity to the culture, he not only talks about captivity to Satan, our enemy, but he talks about captivity to our own flesh. Now, if you're like me, you read that and you immediately think, oh, he's talking about sexual sin, right? He's talking about pornography or lust, or he's talking about some, you know, the sins of the flesh. We've sort of classically always thought about captivity, the sins of the flesh as being things that purely have to do with the deviation from the ways in which God created our body to be used. But note here, when he talks about captivity of the flesh, he's not just talking about sexual sin. He says, we lived in the passions of our flesh, verse three, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, the body and the mind. It isn't just physical captivity to the flesh or to our own lusts and desires. This isn't just lust. It's carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Selfishness, egocentrism, arrogance, distortion of healthy appetites. We're captive to our world and and the distorted evil culture. We're captive, this is who we were, to Satan, our enemy who wants to deceive and trick us to blind our eyes, to steal away the seed of his word. And we're captive to our own selfishness. We're captive to our own flesh, both in our bodies and our minds, distorting the good that God has created for selfish purposes. He says, don't forget who you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were captives, captives to the world, captives to your enemy, captives to your own selfishness. And not only that, look at the last thing he reminds us about our past. You were dead, you were captive, and at the end of verse three he says, you were carrying out the desires of your body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not only does he tell us that we were dead, that we were captive, but he reminds us that we were condemned. I would guess that probably most of you don't love the idea of being called a child of wrath. And there's a lot, there's a lot of conflict in, uh, in all kinds of circles about the wrath of God. People get really upset about how could a loving God demonstrate wrath? And the reason why we so often sort of want to wrestle against the idea of the wrath of God is that we've seen wrath in one another, right? We've seen those moments where we have a bad temper, right? Or, or we, we respond in spite, or we respond in jealousy, or we respond in envy. This is not talking about God's bad temper. God doesn't have a bad temper. God is not spiteful. He's not malicious. He's not evil. He's not selfish. He's not narcissistic. And so when we think about God and his wrath, we tend to, uh, we tend to interpret it in terms of the wrath we've seen maybe from our parents or from school teachers or from other people. Their anger. And in every case, that kind of wrath tends to be Uh, It tends to be rooted in spite and maliciousness. It tends to be rooted in selfishness. Even as a parent, there are times where my anger is not not pure. That is not true of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is just 
and pure. Look, the bottom line, when it comes to being children of wrath, this is who we were, the judgment or the justice of God is perfect and holy. His wrath is towards sin. God consistently and without fail, every place throughout the scripture, without fail, God hates sin. You know what's interesting about that? So do we. We also hate sin. Now, maybe not in the moment that we're doing it, right? In those moments where we're captive to our flesh, in mind and body, in those moments where we're doing things that are a deviation from the path, we're trespassing, right? We're rebelling against God. We don't hate sin in those moments, but without fail, at least in my own experience, every time I've compromised God's law or I've fallen short of the purpose for which he's created me, I feel regret and shame and guilt. I cannot wait for sin to be eradicated from the planet. I hate sin. I hate what it does to my life. I hate what it does to my relationships. I hate what it does to our planet. I hate what it does to politics. I hate what it does to poverty, right? I hate the way in which sin manifested in mankind ruins our world. So it shouldn't be super surprising that God hates sin even more than we do. We see the effects of brokenness and failure. It says not only were we dead in our sin, Not only were we captives to the world and to Satan and to our own selfish flesh, but we were children of wrath. We were condemned, condemned. John 3, verse 36, you may remember this from our study of John. 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3.36 makes it very clear that the goal and the heart of God is to rescue people from from judgment, to take that judgment upon himself. That's why Christ came to die. But the wrath of God is not distorted. It's not evil. It's not spiteful or malicious or wicked. The wrath of God is pure and holy. God hates sin, and he must punish sin. We studied that even in, when we were looking at Second Thessalonians. Remember, Second Thessalonians talks in, in uh, chapter one. Jeff taught this beautifully. In Second Thessalonians chapter one, it says that Jesus will recome. He will return. And he will judge those who, what, have not believed. He return with his angels in flames of fire to pass judgment on those who have not trusted in him. What's he doing? He's punishing sin. That's who we were. He says, don't forget who you were. You were dead. You were captive. You were condemned. That's where we come from, right? This is mankind's greatest problem. And I want you to note this is a universal problem, right? It's a universal problem. This isn't just something that was a problem for the church at Ephesus or a problem for Paul. Note that he talks in verse one of Ephesians chapter two. He says, you were dead in your sins. But if you go just a little bit further down, you'll see that he says, um, he says, uh, verse three, among whom we all once lived in the, pro- in the passions of our flesh, right? So he not only says, you guys were dead in your sins, we all were captive to our flesh. And then a little bit further down when he talks about being children of wrath, he says in verse three at the end, like the rest of mankind, it's a universal issue. It's a universal issue. There are all kinds of things in the world that we all are plagued with, right? We're all plagued with uh, occasionally having to go to the DMV, We're all plagued with those moments where you're just getting ready to take a shower and then you hear the shower turn on because one of your kids has gotten in the shower before you. That's a terrible feeling, right? We're all plagued with that moment where you... uh, where you lean over and you look at your phone to see if it's about, you know, how much longer you have until it's time to wake up, and then you realize you have two minutes until your alarm goes off. Like, there are these terrible things that we all do. We all are plagued with Wendy's, the fast food restaurant. Like, we can't get away from Wendy's, right? This is a universal problem that we all understand. 
And there is no human solution to it. There is no human solution to our death and our trespasses and sins. There is no human solution to our captivity, to the world and to our enemy and to our own flesh. There is no human solution to the wrath of God that remains on us because of our sin. There is no human solution. And no philosopher and no self-help and no religious system, none of those things will ever help us to overcome these things. Mankind is lost. Mankind is lost. There is a humble solidarity that comes when we recognize that every person on the planet, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter how much money you make, no matter what color your skin is, no matter what language you speak, no matter what kind of house you live in, all of us have this in common, that apart from Christ, we are dead and captive and condemned. It's interesting to me the way that religious people can sometimes get their noses up in the air, get their chest puffed up, I guess the same way that a 22-year-old can sort of get puffed up about having a record contract, and all he has to do is jog in his underpants for a little while to bring him back down a couple of notches. God here is reminding us through, through the Apostle Paul, don't forget where you came from. You were dead. You were captive. You were condemned. But if you're taking notes this morning... And if you have one of our Ephesians journals, I hope you're taking notes. I want you to take your pen and I want you to circle the first two words of of verse four of chapter two. Circle them, highlight them, underline them, put an exclamation point in the sides. The first two words of verse four of chapter two are, but God. But God, right? I'm tempted to make a joke. I'm not gonna do that. But God, you were dead. You were captive. You were condemned. But God, what's he saying? But all of that is in the past because of God. Listen to what four, five, and six say. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right? Listen, he says, yes, you were dead. Don't forget, you were dead and captive and condemned. But God did something. God moved. He says, because of God's incredible mercy and his love and his grace, he did three things, and they are, the, they are to counteract our position. He says in 4, 5, and 6, but God, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, number one, made us alive together with Christ. Now we talked several weeks ago about the fact that one of the major themes of the book of Ephesians is the idea of us being in Christ. He's gonna talk about us being in Christ again in a second, but I want you to note here, he doesn't say he made us together, uh, alive together in Christ, he says alive together with Christ. The distinction's important. Because what he's saying is that he doesn't just make us alive representationally because we are in Christ as part of the body, we're his followers, and so Christ was made alive, and you know, by, by nature of our relationship with him, we also are sort of symbolically made alive. No, he says we're made alive together with him, literally brought from, life, from death to life. We are resurrected as well. We talked about that last week on Easter, that we were dead, but God in his mercy and grace and love made us alive. The, the original word there is uh, the idea of reanimation. I don't, want you to, I don't necessarily want you to picture Frankenstein in your head, but it's not a bad image, right? That he reanimates something that is dead, that he gets the monza running again, right? He says, God made us alive. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. He made us alive through his death and resurrection. Not just in him, but made alive literally as well. Not only that, look at what else he says. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, verse five, he made us alive together with Christ. We also were made alive. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. Not only does he give us resurrection life, but he saves us. What do dead people need? Dead people need to be reanimated or given life, made alive together with Christ. What do captives need? They need to be saved. Captives need to be rescued. We were dead and captive and condemned by his mercy and love and grace. He raised us to life in Christ and he saved us by his grace. He rescued us from captivity to this world, captivity to Satan, our enemy, captivity to our own wicked flesh in mind and body. He saved us by his grace and not only that, look at verse six. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of his mercy and his love and his grace, he has made us alive. He has saved us from captivity. And what's the third category where we were? We were condemned? It says no more. What? He's raised us up and seated us with him. What's this talking about? It's talking about empowerment. We talked last week about the idea that we want to remember the power of Christ toward believers. And we said as one of the demonstrations of that power that Jesus himself had been raised and seated in the heavenly places. And that that seating in the heavenly places was not about uh, taking a break. It wasn't him seating to be finished. It was him sitting in authority. Now it says here that not only has God in his mercy and love and grace made us alive, saved us from captivity, but he has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. What's that talking? It's not talking about rest. It's talking about authority. That he has elevated and empowered us so that we can transform a wicked culture. So that we can chase away the devil with God's word and the blood of Jesus. We no longer have to be tempted and captive to that one. And so that we can bring our own flesh under control by the power of his Holy Spirit and the work of Christ within us. We have been raised up and seated with Christ. The idea there is of empowerment. What do, what do condemned people need? They need to be empowered. They need to be set free. And that's what this grace is all about. Why does he do this? Why does he raise us up? Why does he save us from captivity? Why does he seat us with Christ to have authority over the culture and over the devil and over our own wicked flesh? It tells us why. Look at seven through 10. He says, and here, if you're taking notes again, you might maybe underline the first two words of verse seven. So that. You might underline the first two words of verse seven. So that. Why does he do all this? Here's the answer. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why, why does he rescue us from death and captivity and condemnation? He rescues us from those things as a display so that he can put the riches of his grace and kindness on display in us through Christ. We become his workmanship. If you're a kid and you're home today, I hope that your parents took the time to download the coloring sheet. The coloring sheet today has a picture of a painting with like mountains in the background and it says we are his workmanship. It says that here at the end of this. God wants to put us on display. He wants to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. He says, so that in the coming age, verse seven, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. What's he saying? 
He's saying this isn't something you accomplish. It's not something you achieve. It's so counter to our American mindset. Because as Americans, we have this mindset that goes, I can do it all, right? I believe I can fly. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I'm the little engine that could. He says, no, no, no. You don't have this salvation. You don't have this resurrection life. You don't have this empowerment because of your own effort or because you're the little engine that could. In fact, you were dead and captive and condemned. If anything, you're the little engine that can't. By grace you have been saved. It's not of works. You don't have anything to brag about. You don't have anything to be puffed up about. You don't have anything to boast about. Not only is it not of works, it's not the result of your works, he says. Again, look at, look at eight and nine. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, so it's not your own activity. It's the gift of God and not a result of works. So what's he saying? It's not your work that saves you. It's not your work that brings you back to life. And it's also not payment for your work. It's not the result of your work. It's not a byproduct of your work. It's not a reward for your activity. We fall into that mindset too as Christians thinking, well, if I, if I put enough money in an offering plate or I sing loud enough or I memorize enough Bible verses or I walk enough old ladies across the street, right, that then God will raise me from the dead. He'll set me free from captivity to this world and to my flesh. He'll release me from this condemnation by his grace. No, no, it's not true. It's not your work and it's not the result of your work. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast Verse nine, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Verse 10, here it is. Kids, this is the color, the picture you're coloring. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. The word there is poema. It means masterpiece. It means work of art. And he says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, right? That's through his death and resurrection, for good works, which he prepared in advance, that we would walk in them. We used to walk in step with the world, in step with the culture, in step with the devil, in step with our own flesh, fleshly desires. Now we walk in step with the purpose for which we were created, these good works. What are these good works? Well, he's already told us. He wants to put his own kindness on display. Mercy, what is mercy? He wants to put his mercy on display in us. Mercy is forgiveness and compassion when you have absolute right to punish or exact payment, right? Compassion or forgiveness when you have absolute right to exact payment or revenge. That's mercy. God shows us his mercy. What's love? Love that you would lay down your life for another. This kindness that we put on display is the mercy of God. It's the love of God. Sacrificing ourselves the way Jesus gave himself up. And it's the grace of God. What is grace? Gets confusing because we talk about ballet dancers as being graceful or basketball players as being graceful when they dunk it or whatever. Listen, grace, easy. It's undeserved, unearned favor and blessing, right? Not something you earn, not something you work for. Not only was he merciful, he forgave us and gave us compassion even though he could have punished us. He loved us, and he made us his sons and daughters. He raised us to life. He raised us and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. And he did all of that so that he could put on display. You and I are like interactive art exhibits, called to put the kindness, the revolutionary kindness, there it is, the revolutionary kindness of Jesus on display in its mercy and love and grace. And here's the catch. We don't put his mercy and love and grace on display to him, right? God doesn't need our mercy. He doesn't need our grace. We do express love to God for all that he's done, for who he is. 
But God doesn't need our mercy and our grace. Where do we put the mercy and grace of God on display to demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness? Where do we put it on display? We put it on display with our fellow human beings. You know who needs mercy and grace? You know who needs love and kindness? You know who needs to see Christ revealed in the glorious riches of his grace and kindness? It's not God that needs to see it. He knows it already. Everybody else in the world needs to see it because they are dead, because they are captive, because they are condemned, just like we were. And so in our humble solidarity with the brokenness and fallenness of men, we then are prompted to live lives of revolutionary kindness. Viva la revolution, right? We will no longer be captives. We will no longer be dead. We will no longer be condemned because of the great kindness of Jesus and his mercy and love and his grace. You know, crisis, sorry, I got a little shouty there. I got excited. Crisis brings people together, doesn't it? Crisis brings people together. We, we've seen that in our world in the last months. That in the midst of this COVID-19 thing, all of a sudden we're talking with our neighbors, people we've never met before. We're, we're giving things away. We're serving and sacrificing for the good of other people because in the midst of a common enemy, we lock shoulders, we walk together to defend one another and to take care of one another and to preserve one another in the midst in the face of a common name. We see that in, in wars. We see it in the midst of disease. We see it all, all throughout history that crisis brings people together. Can I tell you that as scary and hard as this COVID-19 thing has been, there is a greater crisis in our world today, and it's not virus. The greatest crisis in our world is that the great majority of people on the planet today are still dead in their trespasses and sins, still captive to the thinking of this world, captive to our enemy, Satan, captive to their own fleshly desires, and children of wrath, and that's not unique to them, that's exactly who I was. I remember who I was. God hates sin, so do I, I remember it. I, I, I still make mistakes, we all do. But in this moment of solidarity, there is a great need in our world for the people of God to remember who we were to remember where we've come from, and then to recognize in the world in which we live, there are so many still who have not heard of the glorious riches of God's grace and kindness towards us in Christ. They don't know that they can be made alive together with Christ. They don't know that they can be saved by his grace and set free from captivity. They don't know that they can be raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places instead of condemned by the grace of Christ on their behalf. You and I, we're meant to be active and living art exhibits. Interactive art pieces, the poema, the masterpiece of God, that people would see our good works, our kindness, and understand who God is as we reveal him in his character. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a remembrance of who we were so that we would find a humble solidarity with our fellow man. People all over the planet, regardless of race or class or, or economic situation or language or location, God, all of us dead and captive and condemned apart from you. But God, but God, you have shown us your mercy and love and grace, your immeasurable grace and kindness. And you did that, God. You raised us from the dead. You saved us. You lifted us up and gave us power over that captivity by your grace. 
so that in the coming age we would be your masterpiece, your display, people who were broken and have been healed, people who were dead and are alive. God, help us to reveal you in truth as we enter into the, the plight of our fellow man, as we recognize that the greatest crisis on the planet is not one that there is a human solution for. The greatest crisis on the planet is death and separation from God. And the only solution is your shed blood on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.